Some of you may recall that uh, six years ago in the summertime, uh, Nancy and I had opportunity to go visit Germany. Our daughter lived there. Her uh, husband was stationed there. I actually had a Luftwaffe base as one of the Americans uh, in the Air Force there, and they lived in the Rhineland, and we took the opportunity to spend most of the month of July there, and we rented a little German car with an outdated GPS system and almost ended up in Albania. Uh, but we, took a, we decided to go on a, something of a Luther tour to go see some of the great uh, places where he was raised, where he was born, where he ministered, uh, and that kind of thing. And as all good tourists, we decided to pick up a few little souvenirs on the way. We have this amazing Martin Luther Iselnock snow globe, because it really, really does snow there. We have uh, Katrina and Luther matching coasters, you know. I have these really way cool Luther socks on that I, they're actually a little small. I, th I don't think they anticipated adults to actually wear these, but if you can't read them, they say, Here stink Rick, ich kann nicht anders. Here I stand, I can do no other. Right? His great, his great refusal to recant the great teachings of the Reformation. And perhaps one of my favorite, a Martin Luther Playmobile with a little plastic Bible and a little pen there. So, if you were to go to Germany, though, 500 years ago, you might come back with a different kind of souvenir. You might come back with an official papal indulgence. The difference between this souvenir and that souvenir is that souvenir promised, in a sense, salvation by giving them a sum of money to help add a brick to St. Peter's Basilica. Pope Leo III gave, I mean, V gave exclusive rights to the Dominican monk Johann Tetzel in that area of Germany to sell these indulgences. The basic theme of all of his sermons was the difficulties of their dead loved ones suffering the miseries of purgatory. Can you hear their cries, he would say. Can you hear their pleading to you to get these indulgences to reduce their time in purgatory? Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And as he went from village to village, preaching from on top of a wagon or being invited to preach in the churches, people would flock to give their money to spring their loved ones, having been manipulated uh, by this crass marketing ploy of the Vatican to raise money for St. Uh, Peter's. Well, Luther was incensed. He was incensed by the manipulation. He was incensed by the bad doctrine. He was infuriated that his church that he was ministering in would stoop to such a uh, low level of manipulation in order to raise money. So he wrote the 95 Theses. He wrote it in Latin. It's the language of scholarship. And he hoped that the professors would get, her, get into a debate there at the college in Wittenberg. But the professors may not have seen it because some of his zealous students grabbed the 95 Theses, had them translated in Germany, and using the new uh, uh, movable-type presses that were available, they distributed those pamphlets all over Germany, and the Reformation began. Like Karl Barth said, like a blind man groping in a church tower slips and accidentally grabs the rope of the church bell and awaken the whole town. The 95 Theses didn't really address justification by faith. That uh, had come to Luther sometime prior to this. But it was the bell that started the rediscovery of biblical salvation. Indulgences cheapened grace. 
it added something to the grace that God offers through Jesus Christ in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we protest against bad doctrine. That's why we have the title Protestants. So my hope today is that we will go back to the text that started it all with Martin Luther, Romans chapter 16, I mean, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. And by understanding the truth of just the principle of justification, we're going to understand exactly what it is that we were protesting against and what we are for as Protestants. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you, Lord, recognizing the fact that we are here because brave men and women took you seriously. They read your word. They applied your word to their life, even to, to, to their lives, even to the point of it sometimes costing them their lives. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be like them, that we would know your word, that we would stand for truth, that we would stand in opposition, even if it's opposition within the church, and that you would bless us with the power of the Holy Spirit, an understanding of the word, and lives that reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ in your good name. Bless us as we seek to unmind the wonderful truths that shook the religious world at its very foundations when they were rediscovered after being lost through uh, the, the dark ages. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would like to follow along with me, you are going to just look at these two verses today, but we're in Romans. Romans, of course, is uh, written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. Uh, it, is, uh, it is the richest, deepest theological discourse in all of Holy Scripture. If you want your theology straight, you need to know the book of Romans. So we're going to look at one of the great principles. And in a sense, these two verses may uh, bring out the theme of the rest of the epistle here. So again, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. God says, the apostle Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, for it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And as we look at this, we're going to look at four different component parts here. Each one of these parts begin with the word for. So we're going to break down the different four different times that Paul mentions for, uh, the word for, and explaining what the gospel is. You might find your home group helped insert of assistance here, but you are going to see that there is good news in verse 16. A, God's power, verse 16b, great salvation in verse 16c, and glorious grace in verse 17 here. So first of all, good news. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, and I am uh, beholding to uh, uh, R.C. Sproul, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Tim Keller, and others who have helped me develop some of these thoughts here. But to, get, to understand what Luther went through, you've got to understand that he was a little bit scarred growing up in the medieval, in the, uh, medieval times uh, uh, with, uh, with uh, the doctrines that were going on at the time and his, and his various surroundings, just like all of us. All of us, you know, uh, there's no perfect family, there's no perfect home, there's no perfect parent out there. We all bring our baggage to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, that's why we need a Savior in many ways. Well, he brings his baggage uh, in front of us this morning. Luther grew up as a child looking up at the frowning face of Jesus in the stained glass window of the parish church of Mansfield, Germany. He was terrified of death. And of course, in those days, you know, you've had a funeral at least every week, probably. 
But in particular, he had two of his best friends die while he was in college. He had a particularly terrifying experience. He was caught in the middle of a thunderstorm out in the open, and uh, lightning actually knocked him down to the ground. He prayed out, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. St. Anne uh, is a Mary's mother and is the patron saint of miners. And Luther grew up in a mining home, so it was natural for him to pray to St. Anne and commit his life as a monk. And, uh, uh, but his dad wanted to be a lawyer, so he goes to law school, but he suddenly dropped out of law school on August 17th, 1505, to, in order to go and become an Augustinian monk with the hermits of Erfurt, not to study theology so much, but as to save his soul. It was, uh, he chose that particular monastery because it was the hardest one. They had less fun than other monks. So Luther thought, well, that's, got, that's the one for me. Isn't it sad? We all, sometimes we all have that perspective. The more unhappy I can be, that must equal holiness. I don't think that ever came from God, but that's what we kind of come up with. So he goes and goes, he goes to this, uh, this cloister of misery in his mind here. And they ask all people who would be monks, what do you seek? His answer was God's grace and your mercy. As a student, he looked to the law of God. He recognized his guilt. He understood his, uh, his condemned uh, conscience in so many ways. And then he went about every possible human means in order to rid himself of this guilt. And some of us who became uh, Christians later on in life can relate to what Martin Luther went through. This is a pretty typical path of people who were being awakened by the Lord and awareness of their sinful self and their corrupt heart. He would wear out his confessors. Sometimes he would spend hours confessing his daily sins. Martin Luther said this, if a monk ever could obtain heaven by his monkish works, it certainly would have been entitled to it. Can you imagine someone confessing their sins to you for three hours? That would be hard to listen to, and especially hard for you to come up with that many sins in some ways. Uh, but Luther, no matter what he did, no matter how much he punished himself uh, in repentance, he found no peace. But a faithful mentor, a true believer, John Steppitz, encouraged Luther to read the Bible. Now, here was a revelation. All right, so Luther is in seminary. Luther is becoming a monk, but it hadn't occurred to him to actually get answers from Holy Scripture. Stapit says this, instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arm. God is not angry with you. It's you that are angry with God. Listen to the Son of God. See, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel. What he's doing there by making that reference to gospel, he's referring back to chapter 1, verses 8 through 15, where Paul says his desire is to preach the gospel also in Rome. He wants to go to Rome. He's writing to the Romans. He says that he hopes to be able to go there. And so what is this good news? Well, it, the good news starts off with bad news. The good news of the gospel exposes man's depravity his, uh, his, uh, and, uh, and uh, his sin. And therefore, what we consider good news, if you're a believer, most people consider bad news. Paul says he's not ashamed of it because so many people are ashamed of the gospel. That word ashamed can also be translated offended. What is so offensive about this good news that God allows you, to, by his grace, to come to heaven? Well, looking at some of the commentators, there's several options here. First of all, the thing that's so offensive about the gospel is it is free. We cannot earn it. 
You think initially, well, what's the problem with that? We like free stuff. Not if you're proud. Not if you're a religious proud person that wants to brag about all, how, all, all your moral virtues and that kind of thing. So it's offensive, the, the, uh, 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 the fact that the gospel is free and comes to us from God. Uh, it's offensive because Jesus had to die for our sins. He had to die for our sins. Our sins were so bad, we couldn't fix them. Jesus had to die for that. Uh, and this is offensive to people who think they're innately good. You know, you say to somebody... Uh, uh, you know, are you going to heaven when you die? And, that, and invariably the answer is, oh, yeah, I've never robbed a bank or killed anybody. I, I am innately good, and I am good enough to stand before God. So when you tell them part of the gospel, no, you're not. Everybody's a sinner compared to the ho holiness of God. They are offended. The other thing that's an offense that, uh, that, that might be a reason for shame is, is that, uh, that it teaches that no one's good enough to save themselves. Uh, another one is salvation uh, was accomplished by a suffering God instead of a conquering God. <clears throat> and, of course, the other one is that Jesus, the Savior that we are seeking, died as a criminal on the cross to secure our salvation, which is folly to the Gentiles and repulsive to the Jews. As Tim Keller says, there is no such thing as an inoffensive gospel. He goes on to say that if you really understand the cross of Jesus Christ, you either love it or you hate it. If you don't even love the cross or hate the cross, you don't really understand the cross and what happened there. Of course, this was uh, the, 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 the church that Paul is writing to and those that came afterward are quite accustomed to the fact that people hate the gospel. They're offended by the gospel. One example is there a second century writer named Celsus who attacked Christianity saying, let no cultured person draw near, none sensible, none wise, of the Christians, we see them in their houses, wool dressers, cobblers, and fullers, the most uneducated and vulgar persons. He goes on to say that, they are, that the Christians are like a swarm of bats, ants crawling out of their nest, to frogs holding a symphony around a swamp, and worms cowering in the muck. That hurts a little bit. I mean, right? You know? But what Paul is telling the Romans, he says... I'm not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not offended by this gospel. The reason why I haven't come to Rome so far is not because I think of you as uh, worms that are cowering in the muck. So we see briefly here God's power in verse 16. He says this gospel is the power of God. The gospel demonstrates the great power of God. That idea of power is where we get our word dynamite. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but power. And this is amazing. This is over against the pagan ideal at the time. If you were a worshiper of Zeus, if you were a worshiper of Athena, if you were a worshiper of Mars, any of those, uh, those Greek Roman deities, you, one of the things you understood is that one of the attributes of the gods was apatheia. Apatheia. They're actually quite apathetic about your life. They're just sort of living their own thing, and they like to get the praise and the worship, but when it comes down to it, they're not really all that interested in you. They are somewhat distracted here. But see, the gospel says, no, no, you are my creation. You're made in my image. I had planned this world to be perfect, a virtual paradise. Sin entered into this world, but we can restore some of that paradise now, and it will be restored for those who know me later on. So I'm going to come to the earth in the form of a man and I am going to die for your sins because otherwise you will have to be punished for your sins.
Nothing apathetic about that, is it? Nothing apathetic. But it goes over against so many of the thoughts of, uh, of religion. But this is God's power. And then there's a great salvation. Verse 16c. For salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. This principle of salvation. This is our great burden. Uh, it, the, the human conscience tells us. Unless you've just gotten to where you've just worn it out. Because of your continuing sinning. The human conscience itself says. I've made for a place other than this. And, and my sins, I don't know what to do with my sins. This is the burden of Martin Luther, right? I, I'm overwhelmed by my sins. I want to do good, but I keep doing bad. What's going on with me? Uh, and, and because of that, we are looking for salvation. Again, this was actually a theme of the pagans in a sense. The Seneca, the Roman statesman and philosopher who was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul, said this, All men are looking for ad salute. They're all looking toward salvation. He taught that men are overwhelmingly conscious of their weakness and insufficiency and, and necessary things, and that we, are there, we therefore, quote, need a hand let down to lift us up. Well, that's a description of the gospel right there. Seneca didn't know that, but that's exactly what we have here. That's exactly what God did. He sent a hand down by sending his son to lift us up. Now, this promise, he's not, uh, remember, he's, uh, salvation is for the Jews first and then the Greek. This promise was, came through Father Abraham, Genesis chapter 12. He was the father of all the Jews. He was the father of all the Hebrews. God chose in the early part to make his program known through a particular tribe, a particular family. But even in that promise, all the way back in Genesis chapters 12, uh, 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 verses 1 through 3, there's a statement there, and all of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. That word nations, Gentiles, that's mostly who we are. It started with the Jews, but then it goes into the Gentiles. And Paul, who is the apostle to the Gentiles, writes this account here. This salvation for Paul means a spiritual deliverance. Uh, and uh, he says here, uh, it's all based, of course, upon grace, that no work shall, uh, uh, of the law uh, will cause you to be justified. Romans chapter 3, verse 20. But this salvation is so pronounced, and when we accept it in faith, it's so true that he actually can speak of the salvation that occurs for the Christian in the past tense. He does that in Romans chapter 5, 1, saying you have been justified. In Romans 8, 24, you were saved. This is the great brilliant point of the Protestant Reformation. One of the great uh, uh, slogans of the Protestant Reformation was post tenebras lux, after darkness light. In all the darkness of medieval times and all of the, the man-made religions, the rules and the regulations that just can't, that seem to have no end to them, the ceremonies, uh, the, 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 uh, the utter just uh, leaving of biblical doctrines in that wonderful primitive church that we see in the book of Acts. Of, of all of that darkness, there came light. And the light was just going back to Scripture and looking what God planned with the church that was going to the Gentiles. And this salvation is for everyone who believes. Isn't that something? I mean, there, uh, uh, scripture says in, in Revelation that there will be in heaven people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You want to get rid of racism? Send out missionaries. Every tribe and tongue and people, the people of God gathering together, those made in his, his image, worshiping him for everyone who believes. You're not saved because of your pedigree. You're not saved because of your good works. 
you're saved by belief. Belief. All that is required is to know salvation is belief. It is offered to anyone who believes. So we therefore receive it through faith. In 1510, as a monk, Luther went on an official church business to Rome, but to him it was a pilgrimage full of wonder and expectant joy. Uh, he was just thrilled. The idea of being able to go to Rome, the seat of the Vatican, uh, where, where uh, Peter was martyred, where Paul was martyred. And uh, he was so enthusiastic about this when he saw Rome as he's in the distance, as it drew up up there upon the, the seven hills there, he held up his hands and proclaimed, I greet thee, thou holy Rome, thrice holy from the blood of the martyrs. The problem is, he, as he got closer, the more crushed he was at the reality of this ideal Rome. He says, the, uh, evidently, the impious Italian clerics made fun of the rustic German who took his religious devotion so seriously. He later wrote, no man can imagine sins and infamous actions are committed in Rome. They must be seen and heard to believe. Thus, they are in the habit of saying, if there's a hell, Rome is built over it. It is an abyss whence issues every kind of sin. He concluded, the nearer we approach the Rome, the greater number of bad Christians we meet with. I was talking to one of our members the other day who, who um, whose a lot of her youth group came to faith. She was part of a mainline denomination, and uh, they were having a uh, kind of a youth group Bible study with just the youth, deciding, let's get together and learn more about this faith. We got saved. Uh, and then they ended up hiring this new youth director who came in, and he kept listening to them talk about Jesus and love and grace and how we need to read the Bible and how we need to pray. And the youth, new youth minister came in and said, y'all are just taking this stuff way too seriously. Well, praise God, they didn't listen to him. And he went on to become some kind of milquetoast liberal pastor. Folks, you, you, it would be impossible to take God too seriously. We ought to be people who take God variously, very, very seriously at everything he says. Now, that doesn't mean we're a bunch of, what's the word? Krugamudgeons? I need to, I need to get Bill, uh, Joe Biden's advice on how to use old terms like that. Grumpy old people. But we take God very, very seriously. If Luther didn't take God seriously, we wouldn't be here today. And then we have this glorious grace of verse uh, 17. And, and I'll unpack this in a little bit more detail here. For in the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. So this, this, uh, this wonderful grace uh, comes because it's, it's the righteousness of God. Now this is what... This was the thing that made the difference in Luther that brought us to where we are today. And I'm going to quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones and, uh, and uh, R.C. Sproul here. Uh, the righteous God does not mean righteousness as an attribute of God's person or of God's character. Though it's sometimes used that way, righteousness is certainly a chief attribute of God. But if the gospel was merely the revealing that God was righteous, then what Paul wrote would not be good news, but bad news. We would rather we would uh, remain under the terror of judgment. No one has to tell us God's righteous. We know that he's perfect and everything. But that's part of the problem. We ain't right. And he's going to expect something because of that. We can we, there's a certain terrifying judgment that we know because of his righteousness. But the lights came on. And this is from R.C. Sproul. The lights came on for, for Luther. And he began to understand that what Paul was speaking of here was a righteousness that God in his grace was making available 
to those who would receive it passively, not those who would achieve it actively, but that would receive it by faith and by which a person could be reconciled to a holy and righteous God. The error was this, the, word, the, the Latin word for justification that was used at this time in the church uh, history was, uh, as the word, which, the word we get, uh, our word justification, the Latin word justificar. And it came from the Roman judicial system. The term justificar is made up of the word justice, which is justice or righteousness, and the verb uh, ficar, which means to make. So the Latin fathers understood the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, make unrighteous people righteous. They developed this doctrine that justification came after sanctification. In order to be made just, we must be first sanctified to the point that we exhibited a righteousness that is accepted to God. So the point was they took this Latin term and they said, okay, God's going to make you righteous. So you make your profession of faith to God and then you devote yourself to the sacraments. You go to the mass daily. You make sure that you go through uh, baptism and, and, and then at the end you go through last rites and you make through that you say the Hail Marys and you do all these things. And maybe eventually, hopefully over time, God will actually uh, make you righteous. And you'll really and you will have uh, earned God's favor and will be able to go into heaven. And that was the principle there. It was based on a bad interpretation. This is what Luther did. Luther looked at the Greek, the Greek, which the New Testament was originally written in. And in the Greek word in the New Testament, it's not the Latin word, the word diakos, which meant which didn't mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And this was the moment awakening Luther. He said, you mean here Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own? Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine. It is uh, what is called justia uh, uh, aliorum, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to someone else. It's a righteousness that is extra nos, outside of us, namely the righteousness of Christ. And Luther said, when I discovered that I was born again by the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through. So in Protestantism, the order of salvation, the order of salutis wasn't that you become righteous after you're sanctified for weeks, months, years, decades, but you're actually justified before all that. Then the maturity, the sanctification, the walk in holiness comes because God has already declared you just. Douglas Moo said this, the righteousness of God as the is the entire process which, which God acts to put people into his saving relationship. People who are immoral and people who are moral both reject the gospel when they try to be their own savior. And this righteousness, the second point here, is revealed. It means the revelation of making manifest of something, right? There is no Christianity apart from revelation. That's why we preach from the Word of God. That's why we sing the Word of God. That's why we pray the Word of God. That's why we want you to read the Word of God at least daily. That's why we have books out here that are all about the Word of God. It requires revelation, all people everywhere intuitively understand down deep in their conscience that they haven't subdued it, that there is a God. That's why all cultures worship. Here we are in the most beautiful time of year in Anderson, and you can walk outside and you think, there's order here. There's beauty here. 
Some, something made this, but we don't know his name. You have to have special revelation. You have to have a revelation that tells you that you need to worship Jesus. Let Paul interpret Paul in this idea here, this idea of how we come to this faith, how we become justified. Romans 4, 5 says this, But to the one who does not work, or do the sacraments or whatever, but believes in him is justified. Uh, it is him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Philippians 3, 8 and 9. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of surpassing value of knowing Christ. You know how Luther said he was more monkish than anybody else? Paul would have been more rabbiish than anybody else. I mean, he was the poster child for uh, Jewish obedience at the time. And he says, it's rubbish, it's scubalon, it's dung compared to knowing Jesus Christ, of whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Folks, I, I want you to I want you to join this church. I want you to keep coming to this church. And one reason why is we come from a solid biblical tradition. And the constitution of this church is based on the Westminster Confession of Faith, probably the greatest doc, uh, document ever written by some of the greatest minds that Christianity has ever known. And the larger catechism of question number seven asked this question, what is justification? You know, this is one of those religious terms that are sort of thrown around, but people don't stop and ask, what, what does that actually mean? Let me, let me read to you, and I want you to pay attention, what does justification mean? Because it was lost for hundreds of years until Martin Luther came across this text and made it known again. The answer, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's Free grace onto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, all their sins, folks, even the really embarrassing ones, even the ones you keep doing. All their sins accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ. By God imputed to them and received by faith alone. If you unpack that, you understand Christianity. If you don't understand that, you don't understand Christianity, and you're probably not a Christian. What, he's, uh, what the Westminster Divines are referring to here is the double imputation of Christ. When Christ, all of those, you know, you, you ever, I remember back I would feel uh, religious or I'd start searching for God and I'd decide I probably ought to read the Bible and I'd open it up and, and start reading through Genesis and then, you know, you kind of, okay, it's pretty interesting. You kind of get to the Noah's Ark thing, and you kind of get to the patriarchs, and you start slowing down, and then, and then you get to Numbers, and you got a whole chapter in there on how to kill a heifer. And you, know, you kind of, and you like, what is all that? That's all very important, and it's all inspired, but it's leading to something even better. All of that blood, all of those animal sacrifices, all of those incense, all of that symbolism was fulfilled on the day that Jesus died. And when he was nailed to the cross, God accepted that blood sacrifice so that all of your sins came on him and he became sin for you and all of his righteousness went to you. So that when God the Father looks at those who are born again, those who are a real genuine Christian, he sees his son. Now, who doesn't want that? 
Well, people who want to earn their own salvation. People who get their feelings hurt by that kind of thing. And then we go from faith to faith. There's different options. That, uh, commentators are a little spread out on what this means. It can mean from faith of God who makes the offer to the faith of men who receive it. That's one possibility. It talks about faith's origins. It can mean that everyone who believes stresses the spread of faith. One or one degree of faith to another. It talks about faith's growth. Probably the faith's growth. Probably the best option is from faith from beginning to end. It stresses the primary role of faith, which, of course, is one of the principles of the Protestant Reformation. It is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, what's interesting here, this is why you ought to read your Old Testament. Paul is quoting Habakkuk. You know Habakkuk. You read that last week. Well, actually, we, actually Jack's preaching Habakkuk now. So those of you who go to church here, you can say that. But Habakkuk. So Habakkuk it lives in a time he lives under wicked King uh, Jehoiakim, 608 to 597 B.C. And, 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 and here's, here's something that, uh, that you might be able to relate to. Habakkuk understands God. He has the scriptures. He sees this wonderful ideal that the people of God are supposed to be like. But then he looks out and it's just wickedness everywhere. He's having a Martin Luther moment, right? Boy, I can't wait to go to Rome and see all that holiness. And it's a cesspool of, of idolatry. So he, is, he cries out. The prophet cries out to God. God, what are you going to do about all this wickedness? And you know, remember what God's answer is? You know what? I'm going to judge all that wickedness. I'm going to send the Chaldeans to rough them up. The Chaldeans? They're even worse. And God says, I'll judge the Chaldeans too for what they did. Now, go back, it's, 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 it's a struggle a little bit, it's, it's, but it's real life, right? We, we read our Bibles and we think this is what church is supposed to be like. This is what family is supposed to be like, you know, and then you look at your child and said, get behind me, Satan. You know, how did this ever turn out to be this way? But the righteous man shall live by faith. So part of what Habakkuk went through, he brought us this, but he didn't even fully know it at the time. You know, you ever been out west and you've seen the Rocky Mountains? And you think, well, I'll be there in a couple hours. And like two days later, you come driving through the right there just because they're, that's the way the prophets of old were. They saw in the distance, but they couldn't tell you what exactly what was going on. They couldn't see some of the specifics and everything. He had no idea that this verse that he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit would transform the world. And that we would be here talking about it thousands of years later. Lloyd-Jones says this, it was the understanding of this phrase that produced the Protestant Reformation. So there is a sense in which we can all say as Protestants, we do not fully understand the 17th verse of Romans. We are unworthy of the name Protestant. Indeed, it is doubtful whether we are even a Christian at all. And then we are a righteous man. The glorious news here is there's such thing as a righteous man. And what shall this righteous man? He shall live by faith. He shall live by faith, not by sacerdotalism. Sacerdotalism is this idea that you're saved through the sacraments, through the church. Westminster Confession of Faith goes on to ask the question, what is justifying faith? The answer is justifying faith is a saving grace wrought in the heart of a sinner by the spirit and word of God, whereby he, being convinced of his sin and misery, the bad news first, of the disabil disability in himself and other creatures to recover him out of his lost condition, not only ascends to the sense to the truth of the promise of the gospel, but receives and rests upon Christ and his righteousness, wherein held forth by pardon of sin, for the accepting and counting 
of the person's righteousness in the sight of God for salvation. You see, this is important. Faith is how you get all this stuff. There's an historical fact here. Jesus Christ was nailed to the cross 2,000 years ago. He was God in the flesh. He was God's son. He was meant to be a sacrifice. But it doesn't do you any good if you don't believe that. There's no such thing as universalism. If you're not a true Christian, you are not going to heaven. You will die in your sins. Now, you... Now, you may not believe that, but you can't use the Bible to justify any other position. That's just the truth of Scripture. So you've got to have faith. You've got to believe that that didn't just happen out there somewhere, but that actually happened for me. And you've got to want that. And you've got to plead God's mercy for that. So Protestant Reformation began with a personal reformation of Martin Luther. And that's what some of you need to do. This doesn't need to be an interesting history lesson. This doesn't need to be checking out a couple of verses from the book of Romans. You need to own this. It needs to become deeply personal for you. Luther began, uh, quoting from uh, another commentator, Luther began to read Romans and, and said this, I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Day and night I pondered, I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through the open doors into paradise, the whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it began to me inexpressibly sweet and a greater love. The passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. Luther would call the doctrine of justification discovered in this text the true, the chief article from which other doctrines flowed. It is the master and prince and lord and ruler of the chief judge over all kinds of doctrines. He said, if the article of justification is lost, a Christian doctrine is lost at the same time. He argued, it alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without the church of God cannot exist for one single hour. Dan Doriano summarized it by saying, the gospel cure is not that we do what we can, but that God does what we cannot. And that's what it is. It takes some humility to become a Christian. Because if you keep trying to save yourself, you will never find a Savior. But when you come to the point and you cry out for the mercy of God, that's when you know. And that's when you understand what it means to be declared just by a righteous God because of what Christ did. Post tenebrous lux, after darkness came this light. What's interesting is Luther was preceded by some who said the same things and they paid for it with their life. Uh, this is one reason why you need to vote for good, godly people because the government, frankly, had as much to do with the Protestant Reformation as the church did in many ways because Luther was protected by his prince. That was not the case for Jan Hus in Bohemia. He was betrayed by his prince and handed over to be burned at the stake. And as he was being burned, he said this, and hus means goose. That's what his last name means. You roast a lean goose hus today, but from my ashes, a swan will ascend in a hundred years that you cannot roast. The chief uh, inquisitor at that time was Bishop Johannes Zachariah. 
uh, and that is who condemned Yon Hus. What's interesting is uh, Bishop Zechariah is buried in the floor of the church in Erfurt. When Martin Luther took his vows to become a monk, he laid on the floor of the church floor at Erfurt to receive his vows in the shape of a cross. He became the swan that replaced Jan Hus and Jan Hus's, in a sense, prophecy. Uh, R.C. Sproul likes to say that when Zachariah heard that Jan Hus said that a, go uh, a swan will rise after this goose, that he might have said, over my dead body, which was literally fulfilled when Luther was over his dead body and became a monk. And the world has never been the same. It's after darkness light, folks. And if there is anything that symbolizes our celebration of the Reformation Day is that we are children of light because we've been given light. Praise be to God. Father, I do pray that you would help us to take to heart these wonderful doctrines. Let them become deeply personal. Let us become jealous of them. And so excited of them, we cannot keep silent. If Christians had kept these truths to themselves, it never would have gone out of Wittenberg. Would have just been another interesting topic. But people took this truth to the nations of the earth. And now every tribe and tongue and people almost worship the Lord Jesus Christ. On this same Lord's Day, the voices of hallelujah and the singing of praises and the preaching of your word is going to be happening in Africa and China and South America and all over this world. With our brothers and sisters who have been justified by you because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Help us to join in that choir, choir and to teach others to sing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.